the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon, at both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Episode 53 returns to the issue first raised by the Apollo astronauts, lunar dust and how to mitigate it. Then we take a look at some of the Apollo findings and later ask what should our settlement priorities be and where should those lunar settlements be. Or should we instead head for the small bodies of the solar system? First to Houston, Texas. So yeah, I'm Kristen John. I'm from Johnson Space Center. Um, I'm in the Engineering Directorate in the Spacecraft Performance and Concept Engineering Group. And so my uh, current role is the Discipline Lead for Dust Mitigation for HLS. Um, so I work with a few folks uh, doing dust mitigation on uh, but obviously it's a much bigger effort. Um, and I'll touch a little bit on some of the stuff and how we're kind of working across, across the agency to solve the dust problem. Okay, so the dust problem. So I think we're all pr pretty familiar here. And, you know, here's another picture of Gene Cernan, our, our favorite astronaut to use to talk about dust mitigation. But I think, you know, when we, you know, talk about the dust problem, it really is, you know, obviously it has all these implications for, you know, clogging mechanisms in the breeding surface and impacts to human health toxicology. Um, and so it really is a, a problem that needs to be solved. So, you know, one thing I like to talk about is, you know, with, with the different folks we work on with dust is, you know, lunar dust is in, inevitable. We're going to see lunar dust. Um, and, you know, dust mitigation is not a new concept. Obviously, it's something that had to be done during Apollo and something we've been thinking about. But one thing I'd kind of like to, a point I'd like to make here is that, you know, mitigating dust uh, is critical for the success of lunar surface science investigations. So, you know, dust mitigation is a problem we have to solve, but I think it's also something that's very necessary um, in order for the, the surface experiments and the surface investigations to be successful. Um, and so this is, you know, something I like to say is that, you know, whether you like it or not, you're going to have to, to deal with the dust. You know, one of the things about dust, right, is dust knows no boundaries. And so that can be um, true for for all sorts of things when you're talking about who's, whose problem it is, who's going to solve the dust problem, um, you know, where dust is going to go, what mechanisms it's going to, to interact with, what systems it's going to affect. It doesn't, it doesn't know boundaries. 
So therefore, dust is everyone's problem. This is really an issue that we all need to be working on, we all need to be solving, we all need to be working together. So therefore, an integrated dust mitigation strategy is key. Okay, so when we talk about an integrated dust mit mitigation strategy, you know, the first thing I, I think of and we think of when we talk about, you know, mitigating dust and dust management um, are the different steps. And so a lot of people jump right to the technologies, um, but before you even do that, you have to understand, you know, can you tolerate dust exposure? If, you're, if your system can be exposed to dust and that's okay, um, then we can leave it at that. Uh, and then we need to be able to understand how much dust is in our, our system or our habitat or whatever it is that we're looking at. So detecting the dust, monitoring the dust. Um, and then obviously we want to control how much dust goes into our system that we're talking about, how much dust comes in. And, that, and then after that, that's when you start talking about removal of dust. Um, and so technologies have a role in, in all of those steps. Um, but I know a lot of the, the tools and technologies that we think of um, take place during that fourth step there. Um, but then there's also, you know, there's operational things we can do, like how we, how we mitigate dust during EVAs. And then there's architectural approaches as far as the designs of spacecraft. And then there's passive and active technologies. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, there's different, different ways to, to solve the problem, um, depending on, on what system you're trying to, to mitigate dust on. Um, and then as far as, you know, the, the different systems that are affected and the different assets that are affected, like I said, it's, it, dust knows no boundaries. So whether you're, you know, on the surface, um, you know, you're going to get dust, but that dust is going to come inside your habitat. It's going to affect your different um, elements and, and potentially get up into your orbital assets. And so we have to be aware of it. Everyone has to be working together on this problem. Um, and then as far as the systems, again, every system that interacts with the dust directly, of course, is going to be affected, but then dust can get transferred here and there. And, and so we have to think about dust from that perspective. Um, okay, so I, I stole this from the... Um, from one of the emails that, that went around from the Lunar Listserv this week, and John Gruner had put this quote out there, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, but it's Arthur C. Clarke, quote, uh, the crossing of interplanetary space, though a technical problem which will challenge all man's ingenuity and resources, is not an end in itself, but merely a beginning. There is no point in going to the planets unless we do something when we get there. Um, and so that's really where I like to drive the idea that, that this is a collaboration between science and engineering, and that dust mitigation is an engineering problem, uh, but there's a lot of um, science that that can benefit from doing dust mitigation and hopefully science that can be learned um, while we're interacting with the dust. And so kind of with that, you know, is, is that the dust problem is cross-cutting. And so it's, you know, I think it's in the name, right? So lunar dust mitigation. When I think of lunar, uh, when I think of the moon, I think of exploration. I think of, you know, of going somewhere, of human exploration, humans going to the moon. When I hear dust, I think, you know, naturally it's a, it, you know, scientific thing and there's a lot to be learned about the dust and the regolith. And then when I hear mitigation, um, you know, I think of technology. That's the first thing that comes to my mind in engineering. And so I really think dust is a great problem where we can get engineers and scientists working together uh, to, to solve this problem. Um, and then as far as the role of dust mitigation in lunar science, in order for your science experiments to be successful, you need to mitigate dust. And so, you know, Viper is, is an example I like to use, but, you know, Viper is going to be, you know, moving around through the regolith, so they need to protect uh, different mechanisms from dust. Um, if you have a, a sample arm, for, for in uh, instance, you need to, um, you know, be able to mitigate the dust so that you can operations. Um, obviously, imagery, optics, solar panels, we want to protect those surfaces from dust. So in order to do successful science, we have to mitigate dust is about the scientific value of lunar dust. I, I think I'm preaching to the choir here, but obviously we've learned so much from the lunar dust uh, since the Apollo days and continuing to learn more about it um, through the ANCSA investigations. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting was, you know, the just by looking at the images of the boot prints, uh, we were able to get information about the porosity of the regolith. 
and there were other, you know, other surface surface experiments um, like the LEAM experiment that was part of the all set package. But in general, I think we have opportunities now as we send more and more payloads back to the surface um, to work together to, you know, to do science investigations um, and dust mitigation efforts and, and benefit um, from each other on that. Okay, so uh, just to kind of summarize it here, you know, what I know for sure, we are going to the moon, we know there will be dust, and we know we need to mitigate the dust. And so if, if all that is happening, you know, what can we do? How can we leverage dust mitigation to learn more about the moon? Because I really do believe if we're going there, we're going there for a reason. We want to learn more about the moon. Um, so that brings me to my last questions. And so um, the questions I get working dust mitigation across um, JSC is, you know, what, what simulant should I use? I get that question all the time. Um, and then that's probably the most common question. And then another question I get a lot is, how will the regolith be different at the South Pole? And so I've talked to different scientists and I've, I've gotten some different explanations on this, but, um, you know, I try, to, I try to answer that question as best I can. And then a question that I have for this, this forum is, like I said before, how can we leverage dust mitigation in order to learn more about where we're going? Thank you. Kirsten John at the Johnson Space Center. Houston, we have a problem. Dust. Back in the Apollo days, James Head was a geologist and during the moon landings was in the science support room at Mission Control. These days, he is with the Department of Earth, Environmental and Planetary Sciences at Brown University on Rhode Island. In March of 2022, he gave this overview of the findings of Apollo. So what are, what are the legacies of Apollo? What do we learn and what are the exciting things that really have changed our perspective here? I want to go through a list of these, if you will, uh, these six missions and what they have done to change our view um, I'm going to touch on these very briefly, each of them, and but I'll just touch on these to give you an idea how across the scientific spectrum, how the Apollo program really changed our thinking. The first one is return rock and soil samples in geological context. You know, when we think about meteorites, we don't actually know exactly where they came from. So we study them without much geological context. But the Apollo missions, we were able to get know exactly where these came from, associate them with materials and craters, uh, crustal materials, etc., and put them in the geological context. And indeed, each of these sites was chosen on the basis of key scientific questions. So the scientific samples that were collected related to those fundamental questions, geological context. For example, we could look at big basins like the Oriental Basin and say, hey, you know, we chose Apollo 17 because it's right on inner ring. We chose Apollo 15 because it's on the outer ring, and we've sampled the ejecta with Luna 20, uh, Luna Apollo 14, and Apollo 16, and now we can study these things in this context. So returning samples uh, in the context of uh, the geological environment is critically important. But we learn a huge amount about lunar geophysics. Geophysics is critical to understanding a planet as a whole, seismology, heat flow, and magnetism. For example, um, we learned that the moon was made up of chemical layers like the earth, crust, mantle, and core, but also mechanical layers, a lithosphere, an asthenosphere. Uh, we learned that the chemical layers were unstable with time uh, because the magma ocean formed. Uh, some of these uh, residues from that were thermally and um, chemically uh, negatively buoyant, and so they foundered with time. And this sets the stage for later lunar thermal evolution. We, the concept of the lunar magma ocean which in fact is due to the accretional energy associated with the early impact bombardment, this was 
a hypothesis formulated by John Wood at Apollo 11, and the late stage accretional heating uh, really produces the major setting for early planetary crusts. We've applied this to other planets very successfully, including the Earth. Uh, we also learned a concept of primary, secondary, and tertiary crust. Primary is what we've talked about here with the magma ocean. Secondary is partial melting of the mantle. And tertiary crust is essentially recycling of these first two. Uh, we see that in terms of plate tectonics on the Earth. But do we have any similar types of things on other planetary bodies? So this is critical. Uh, we also learn the lithosphere, uh, the outer rigid layer, if you will, the thermal boundary layer. We learned that this thickened with a function of time and became less heterogeneous with time. So if you think about the moon, uh, it doesn't have plate tectonics. It's essentially a one plate planet and it loses heat conductively as a function of time. Very different than the earth, which loses heat by plate tectonics. So if we think about this, for example, the earth is losing heat by planetary recycling. Uh, EO, the innermost of the Galilean satellites, loses heat by volcanic heat pipes. It actually effectively transfers the heat to the surface. But the Moon, Mercury, and Mars, in fact, lose heat by lithospheric conduction. They're just good radiators because the surface area to volume relationship is so high, ratio is so high. So this gives us the opportunity to apply this to other planetary bodies. What about Mercury? What about Mars? What about Venus, the most Earth-like of the planet? Where does it fit in this? This the moon forms the basis for, in fact, even asking that question. We also learned about the role of impact cratering and its effect on the structure. That impact bombardment can produce a, a soil layer that's 10 kilometers thick and also uh, have a huge effect on the porosity of the crust as a function of depth. This was from the seismic data. The heat flow experiments were also critically important. We found out that there was a place on the moon in the northwest part of the moon, the Procolarum creep terrain, that had a superabundance of radioactive material compared to the far side and other parts of the moon. How does that work? Why is that the case? What causes that enhancement in these radioactive layers? It's a really important fundamental aspect and an unanswered question about the moon. We also learn uh, something of the Earth's, uh, the moon's magnetic field. The moon turns out not to have much of a field today at all, but it has samples which are magnetized. So the origin of crustal anomalies, uh, what are they doing there? We see crustal anomalies, we see samples that are um, that are uh, magnetic in, in nature, and we're trying to understand the nature and evolution of the lunar magnetic field. How did it vary with time? This is why going back and getting more samples is important. The other thing is that we learn how to understand planetary geological processes. Now, of course, we study geological processes on the Earth, but we, we tend to think of them in a very special uh, Earth-centered way, a Terra-centric way, if you will. But on the Moon, uh, it's really something we don't usually think about, which is impact cratering. The Moon is a fundamental laboratory for basic understanding of how impact cratering works. We see little pits on the rocks. We see differences in morphology as a function of increasing diameter. As the basins excavate into deeper and deeper material, we see changes in morphology that have given us an idea about what's going on with the response of this. So we can't get to all these other cratered surfaces of planetary bodies, and virtually all of them are, um, but we can see these on the moon. So this is also really, really important. And we look upon this laboratory as a way to really increase our understanding uh, we can see, for example, the crater to basin transition here. How do you go from an impact crater 
to a basin? What's going on at depth in terms of temperature and pressure? What's going on in terms of collapse of the crater? This is all really critical information for all planetary bodies that we can actually understand uh, from investigating uh, the moon. And of course, lunar volcanism, this is one of my passions, if you will, it's to try to understand volcanism. We see beautiful lava flows on the surface and Mari Embrium, a whole host of features that we've been able to actually link to these sinuous rills like the Hadley Rill and Apollo 15. We've been able to link uh, to the surface. We see steep-sided domes. This looks like a crater, but it's actually a dome. It's 20 kilometers across and about 1,100 meters high. It's very viscous volcanism. Is that a granite on the moon? This is clearly more basaltic in nature. What is the differentiation and how do you fit that together? So returning the samples, not just the surface geology, but looking at the samples has enabled us to understand the origin and basically generation, ascent, and eruption of magma, molten rock on the moon, primarily basaltic. And it is this collective information from the samples return, petrologic studies, petrogenetic studies, uh, geochemical studies, and geological studies that have been able us to put together a really good model for the generation of molten rock at depth and its transport to the surface and eruption on the surface. So this is a real, real gift from Apollo and indeed can be applied to all the planetary bodies. Looking at the crater frequency distribution, we can calibrate that by bringing samples back from various geological units, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, for example, enable us to calibrate that cratering chronology curve. And most recently, China has return with the Chang'e 5 mission, beautiful mission, incredible data. It landed in this orange area here, and it dated it at about two, 2 billion years ago, which helped to recalibrate what we thought was the flux curve for the moon. So getting the samples back and dating them in the laboratory is critical to understanding the history of volcanism on the moon, and in fact, application to other bodies. And again, thinking about the tectonics on the moon, do we have folded mountain belts? Do we have uh, great rift valleys, et cetera. Well, because the moon's a one-plate planet and has a continuous lithosphere, it's losing its heat largely by uh, lithospheric conduction. When we look at this, uh, we can take a look here at what happens when all these Mari basalts come out, they load that lithosphere. Instead of having lateral tectonics, like we see on the earth, for example, we actually have vertical tectonics. We have loading uh, of the lavas, onto the crust of the moon, you know, up to four or five kilometers thick in the middle. This puts a load on the moon. We have lithospheric flexure. We have gravins, wrinkle ridges, and we can actually date, as Sean Solomon and I did quite a while ago, uh, the evolution of these loads and think about tectonics on the moon and other one-plate planets, Mercury, Venus, uh, Mars, how they operate. So this is a real insight from the Apollo data. And of course, I mentioned the lunar and planetary chronology. We can build up uh, this whole chronology here to help us understand what the global flux is. That is to say, the number of impact craters coming in, number of impact projectiles coming in as a function of time. This is really important for understanding the solar system evolution. Uh, we can calibrate the cratering chronology like we did with the Chang'e 5 samples, and then we can extrapolate this to other planetary bodies. That's critical because all the ages on the other planets we don't have samples taken in place. We don't know actually what that is. We have to extrapolate from the moon uh, to these other planetary bodies. So the moon becomes even more important in that context. And the origin of the moon, where does that thing come from? It's the really unusual satellite. You know, it's the biggest satellite in the solar system. 
you know, what's going on there? Uh, we take a look here at the moon. It's essentially, we've, we've discovered that in fact, it formed from the impact of a Mars-sized object into the early Earth, and the ejecta from that appears to have formed the moon. It recollected in orbit and collected to form the moon. And of course, many people said, oh, gee, that has to, that explains why the moon is so dry. And indeed, it, it, it was thought to after Apollo, thought to be dry. But Alberto Sol, once again, uh, was able to look at the uh, lunar magma glasses and find volatiles in them. And that completely changed the picture, not of how the moon formed from an impact of a Mars-sized object, but how it actually, was it one impact, two impacts? Was it oblique? How do you account for the fact that something that intense uh, did not get rid of all the volatiles? So that helped us to refine the models of the early formation of the impact into that body and also uh, the formation of the moon. Also, you know, we find that this gives us a context for early history of the Earth. This is really important. If we take a look at the Earth, if we look at the history of the Earth as a function of the, like a clock, okay, the history, origin of the Earth starts here, and then we have the present day. If we take a look at the percentage of the Earth formed at different times in that history, the ocean basins form two-thirds of the surface of the Earth, and that, in fact, provides us with data that really gives us recent history. And the continents, you know, provide more information back in time, of course, but they really don't provide detailed data on the first half of solar system history in ways that we can understand the last half of solar system history. So, wow, we're in big trouble trying to understand where we're going if we don't understand where we've been. But the planets, and particularly the moon, provides, in fact, that view. This is what is going on in early history. Big impact basins, impact craters, early volcanism, magma oceans, all of these things can now be brought into the picture of the Earth's formative years, which indeed help us to figure out not just the history of the Earth, but where we're going in the future. This is a real gift from Apollo. Finally, this the, not, not finally, a couple, the, there's a template for planetary accretion and bombardment history. If we take a look here, for example, the flux, very high early on, decreasing to low now. We don't know whether there are big peaks in here or not. And the dating of these surfaces of the moon and counting of craters really gives us an idea of what's going on. And one of the goals of upcoming sample uh, return is in fact the South Pole Aiken Basin. This is a huge 2,400 kilometer diameter basin. And it is one of the earliest basins that we know about. So we're hoping to be able to date that basin and understand uh, the chronology of the solar system from this as well. So the moon really keeps on giving in all these ways. It's also a cornerstone. Everything we learn about the moon, we can apply to, in fact, these other planetary bodies. You can see from all the lessons we have here that it helps us to understand Venus, Mars, Mercury, and indeed the Earth itself. It's a cornerstone for understanding. So the more we can study these, the better off we can appreciate what's going on on our own home planet and the family of Earth-like planets. Indeed, if you think about it then, we can apply this chronology, do geological maps of the Moon, Mercury, uh, and, and Mars, and indeed begin to understand the early history and compare it to the large Earth-like planet like Venus and uh, other planetary bodies and exoplanets. So this is, this is really, really important, the data from Apollo. Finally, I want to point out that we use the Moon as a platform and a template uh, so, okay, we really want to understand the moon, but it is a platform away from the Earth, away from the radio noise of the Earth, away from Earth's atmosphere. 
And as with Johannes Geis's experiment from Switzerland on Apollo 11, uh, basically we can study the solar wind. That that uh, foil, aluminum foil uh, flag there, if you will, uh, really is collecting solar wind and helps us to understand what's going on, how the space environment uh, it, it actually affects materials on the surface and affected the earth early on and even today. So it's used as a platform. And of course, even more so, George Carruthers, uh, uh, a, a very excellent scientist from uh, the Naval Research Laboratory in the United States, uh, developed a camera here, which was deployed by Apollo 16. And this was a far UV camera and a spectrograph, which actually took pictures of the Earth and different bodies at different wavelengths, and indeed is a precursor for the kinds of observatories we will in fact be building on the moon in the future, particularly on the far side in the radio quiet area. So basically we've really, we've really come a long way and the Apollo program was a fundamental demonstration of the importance of science and engineering synergism, as well as really collecting the kinds of samples that can really fill in our understanding of not just the moon, but the other planetary bodies and indeed the early history of the earth. Brown University's James Head. Harrison Smith is a geologist who was the 12th man to walk on the moon. In February of 2021, he offered this thought on lunar settlement and science. Well, I don't. I think once you have a, a clear-cut settlement or, or a pro, uh, long-term base on the moon, I, I prefer settlement. Uh, then uh, it will be a base for uh, a great deal of scientific exploration. That will be one of the advantages of having a uh, a, a settlement is that you can plan long-term ex exploration. Almost certainly uh, some of that will be done uh, by hoppers. Some of it will be done by uh, uh, long-range vehicles of various kinds. I tend to prefer the vehicle, but I'm sure others will prefer hoppers, as we discussed even for Apollo. Uh, no, I, I think a, a central location on the moon with the with access to other parts of the moon is going to be extremely important. Uh, for example, uh, the deployment of a uh, of a radio telescope on the far side of the moon uh, that almost certainly could be handled uh, from uh, by multiple stories uh, from a base which had continuous communication. Schmidt was asked for his opinion on where the first lunar settlement should be. Well, I think the first human settlements will probably be related to resource uh, uh, recovery. And so uh, that that's going to be pretty well to control where the company town ends up. Apollo veteran scientist James Head wonders whether we should explore the moon or would we learn more by visiting the small bodies of the solar system? By that he means dwarf planet Ceres, asteroids and comets. Well, it's 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 sort of like you know, you can put it in the context of uh, uh, economics and say, uh, well, if you're going to invest, uh, you need to have a balanced portfolio. You can't just do all, oh, I'm going to invest in oil only. Uh, I'm going to invest in mining only. I mean, you you really have to have a balanced portfolio because, in fact, we're learning from all of these. Translating that into a scientific parlance, if you will, we learn from all of these. And so if we ignored small bodies, um, that would be ridiculous. These are the building blocks. The comets and the asteroids are the building blocks of the planets. We really need to understand those. And I think NASA has done a really good job of balancing this priority. 
you know, fortunately, we're 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 a, a relatively wealthy nation, so we can afford to have a balanced priority. I think people. This is the importance of scientific cooperation and coordination. Uh, you know, some some countries won't have the resources to have a diverse portfolio, but they can work with all the countries to see where. Um, they can make a big contribution, okay, and maybe work and say, okay, look, if you do less investment in this, we can do that. And then together as scientists and and residents of the earth, <laughs> you know, we can have a better picture of what's going on. Uh, so there's no simple answer, but the United States relies on the scientific expertise of the uh, National Academy of Sciences to develop decadal surveys where they um, make a prognosis about what are the big issues? What are the big questions in the future? And what are their recommendations for what should be done in terms of uh, scientific issues and, and mission priorities? So that's very helpful as well.